Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Come on in. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. There are handouts as usual in the back. If you'd like to follow along, there are two handouts today, so be sure to get the second one, which we'll cover at the end of our time today as a summary. So this is our 10th and our last session on our study of the attributes of God. I tell you, it has been a true joy for me to go through this study with you. And trust me, we have only scratched the surface of these glorious truths of God's attributes. I pray it's been a blessing to you as much as it has been a blessing for me. Now, to end this series, uh, this last session, we're going to cover two more magnificent attributes of God, his love and his glory. And then we'll wrap up with a short summary at the end. So pray with me as we begin our time. Father, we praise you for who you are, our great and our awesome God. You are worthy of all praise and all honor. Thank you for the time this morning to look into your attributes of love and glory. Pray that you would help us get a better understanding of how great your love is and how glorious you are. May we not do this just to fill our minds, but that you would fill our hearts to love you more, to behold your glory, and to give you the glory that you're due. Bless our time this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Love is one of the most, if not the most, cherished attribute of God. Adequately describing the love of God in such a short amount of time is, at best, a challenge and perhaps impossible. But I will try. The love of God has comforted troubled hearts, lifted spirits, brought great encouragement to many. But perhaps yet no other divine attribute has been more misunderstood. Too often it's seen as a sentimental or a mushy feeling. But nothing could be further from the truth when we think of God's love. While his divine love for us does involve tender feelings. It it runs so much deeper. It's a holy love. It involves all of his nature, and we'll look into that. So I've defined God's love here as God's goodness toward people unconditionally through his affection, care, and delight. His affection, care, and delight. Uh, The previous attributes we've discussed here and studied revealed many wonderful things about God. Think about all the attributes we've discussed. His eternity and his immutability, his sovereignty, his power. But if all these characteristics were attributed to some abstract being who is devoid of feelings and personal responses, that would leave us desiring more, right? It would be lacking a relationship. 
R.C. Sproul said this, if God were merely a self-existent eternal field of energy, who would ever want to worship him? How could we have fellowship with an impersonal force? As a personal being, God is capable of loving and being loved. The God we worship is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all people. And that means that God is a God of people. He is a personal God with whom human persons can have a love relationship. And when we look at his attribute of love, we see his personal nature. J.I. Packer used several anthropomorphisms here in this description he gives. When we looked at God's wisdom, we saw something of his mind. When we thought of his power, we saw something of his hand and his arm. When we considered his word, we learned about his mouth. But now, contemplating his love, we are to look into his heart. So, let's look at some characteristics of God's love. Number one, God is love. Very basic, I know. But we need to start there. It may sound repetitive because we've done this with other attributes, have we not? But God not only has love, he not only exhibits love, he is love. His entire being is permeated with love. Scripture makes this clear. 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16 both declare the words, God is love. So what is love? As you probably know, the word for love in Scripture can have different meanings. In the New Testament, the strongest Greek word for love is agape. It's most often used to describe God's love. In 1 John 4, 8 and 16, use that word agape. Agape love is a self-sacrificing action. It seeks the benefit or the highest good of the recipient. It's a willful delight in the recipient. The foundation of agape love is not based on emotions. Not that it doesn't come with emotions, but it's not based on emotions. It's a determined act of the will, a joyful resolve to put the welfare of the recipient above its own. All agape love comes from God. We see it most clearly in the sacrifice of Jesus, the ultimate act of love. God's love is inseparably connected with his other attributes as well. For example, his love is holy, pure, and flawless. His love is immutable. It never changes. His love is righteous, always doing what is right. His love is sovereign. By his authority, he chooses his elect by his saving love. And his love is eternal. It's without beginning, and it's without end. And I could go on. His love never compromises any of his attributes. Number two, God is self-loving. He is self-loving. Not in a selfish way, but the love of God is perfectly expressed between the three persons of the Trinity. His love is intra-Trinitarian. This makes sense because in God there is one divine nature. 
God the Father has loved God the Son from before the foundation of the world. John 17, 24. And the Son likewise was in the bosom of the Father from before time began. John 1, 18. Matthew 3, 17, at Jesus' baptism, if you recall, the Holy Spirit was present in the form of a dove when the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity present. This indicates unity and love among the persons of the Godhead. John 3.35, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The, The Son did His Father's will to the delight of the Father. His obedience to the Father demonstrated His love for Him. In John 14.31, Jesus says, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The Father loves the Son so much that He gives to the Son a redeemed humanity, His elect. John MacArthur says, The Father loves sinners so that by loving them, He can express His love to His Son. We're nothing but the Father's love gift as the elect bride to the Son. So, What's the significance to us of this intra-Trinitarian love? Well, the Father, the love of the Father has for His Son is the same love He has for us as believers. Think about that. John 17, 23, Jesus in His high priestly prayer says, I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. What an amazing love the Father has set on us. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Number three, God is initiating. He is initiating in His love. This divine love between the persons of the Trinity overflows toward sinners. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, Paul says, Just as He, God the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons. The love of God motivated the Father to choose His elect. And then he gave his elect to his son, Jesus, to be his chosen bride. Now, some may think this initiating, choosing, predestining is a harsh truth. But in reality, it's an expression of his love to his people. Moses says in Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but, but, but because the Lord loved you. God's electing love for Israel was not because they were greater in number, certainly not. It wasn't because they were better than others. And it wasn't because they had more to offer God. Because if that was the case, God would have chosen Egypt or Babylon or Rome, but instead he chose Israel purely out of his love. Martin Luther said, 
God does not love us because we are valuable, but we are valuable because God loves us. We've got to get that order right. This divine love comes from within God's own character, not because of anything good, attractive, or lovable in humanity. In fact, he loves despite the fact of sin and disobedience in his people. It's his nature to love the unlovely. J.I. Packer put it this way, God loves creatures who have become unlovely and, one would have thought, unlovable. There was nothing, whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth, nothing in us could attract or prompt it. Love among persons is awakened by something in the beloved, but the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God loves people because he has chosen to love them. And no reason for his love can be given except his own sovereign good pleasure. In his love, he is initiating. Number four, God is sacrificing. He's sacrificing. The love of God is a sacrificial love. It gives it great personal cost. And according to agape love, it seeks the highest good of the one that's loved. And this is more than just words. This is love in action. The greatest expression ever of sacrificial love was the love that God showed us by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners. 1 John 4, 9, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Because the Son is co-equal with the Father, Charles Spurgeon says that God gave God. He goes on to say this, When the great God gave His Son, He gave God Himself. For Jesus is not in His eternal nature less than God, When God gave God for us, he gave himself. What more could he give? God gave his all. He gave himself. Who can measure this love? And of course, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So there's no greater sacrifice that could be made And he did so out of his love. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. No one has done anything to prepare themselves to be fit for his sacrificial saving love. Right? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 5.25 tells us that Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So God's love is sacrificing. Number five, God is affectionate. He's affectionate. The love of God is more than a willful choice in his sovereignty. It also includes an intense passion that he has for his people. God's not a stoic ruler making decisions that lack any affections. His love 
runs much deeper than just making cerebral choices. He takes delight in his people. Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 9, the Lord will again rejoice over you. Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, the Lord delights in you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Zephaniah three seventeen, the prophet says, The Lord your God will exult over you with joy. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Turn over to Luke chapter 15 with me. Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. Here, Jesus tells a parable about a shepherd who searches for a lost sheep until he finally finds it. And I want you to note his reaction at the end. Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. God and all of heaven rejoices in the salvation of souls. Later in this chapter, in the parable of the prodigal son, where the father's love for his son is a picture of our heavenly father's love for his children. Look over there in verse 20 in that same chapter. So he, the son, got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. When the father calls lost sheep to himself, it's not just a legal transaction. God is overjoyed. There's celebration in the heart of God over the salvation of those who come to him by faith. So some takeaways here on the attribute of God's love. And each of these is supported by verses in 1 John chapter 4, if you want to turn there to look at the verses. Number one, God's love is perfected in believers. 1 John 4.12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This word perfected is the same word used by Jesus on the cross when he proclaimed, it is finished. Not only was our debt from sin paid in full, but God's love for us was also provided in full. We don't get more love from him by doing righteous deeds. Nothing can be added to or taken away from God's perfect love for us. And it's a love that never changes. Number two, perfect love casts out fear. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Perfect love here is not referring to our love. 
It's referring to God's love. True believers need have fear no judgment because God of his perfect love. Beaky and Cosby say, God is the only one with perfect love, and he casts out our fear of others, of death, and of sin. If you know deep down that you are unconditionally loved by the king of the universe, what is there to fear? Number three, we can love God and others because he first loved us. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. The only way anyone can ever love God or others is if God first gives them new hearts to love him. It's God who took the initiative to love us, not us. Our love has its origin in God's love. Our love, both for him and for others, is in response to his love for us. Steve Lawson says, let us never lose sight of God's constant care for us. His love never stops giving to meet our needs. He is always going ahead of us to prepare the way. He comes behind us to protect us. He is under us to support us. He is beside us to encourage us. He is in us to strengthen us. We are forever immersed in the breadth and length and height and depth of his great and glorious love. So those who've repented, trusted in Christ for salvation, you're objects of God's saving love. And if that's you, you can say with Paul, as he says in Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that doesn't describe you, then repent and believe in Christ. Then you will never be separated from God's love. So that is a brief and I'm sure inadequate description, an observation of God's love. But we must move on. We are going to now look at God's glory. I've uh, defined God's glory here as God's radiant display of his perfect nature, splendor and majesty, revealing his infinite worth. God's radiant display of his perfect nature, splendor and majesty, revealing his infinite worth. God's glory is the manifestation and the display of his divine attributes and perfections. It's the radiant splendor and majesty that emanates from his being. His glory can be said as the sum total of all and who he is. The sum of his attributes, his divine nature. God's glory is not something external or separate from his nature, but it's inherent to who he is. It is his intrinsic brilliance and magnificence. God's glory is eternal and unchanging. And it's ultimately his own glory that he created and sustains the universe. Now, at different times throughout history, God has displayed his glory in various ways. I've got some points here. First, letter A, in creation. Creation is a testament to God's glory. 
right? Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses declaring the work of his hands. His glory is demonstrated in the beauty and diversity and order of creation. It's majesty and power. Think of the forces of nature and the provision it provides. All at his hands. All of this reveals his power and his sovereignty and his wisdom. Isaiah 6.3, the angels declare, the whole earth is full of his glory. Better be in the Garden of Eden. God's glory was present at the very beginning in the garden. He manifested himself to Adam and Eve. And they lived in his presence, enjoyed fellowship with him. But unfortunately, that was only temporary, right? When they sinned, God expelled them from the garden because they were no longer fit to be where his glory was. Letter C, another example, is on Mount Sinai. God revealed his glory to Moses. Moses even dares to ask God to show him more of his glory. We'll look into that a little bit here shortly. Letter D, in the tabernacle. God revealed his glory in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, on the mercy seat, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. There God tabernacled or dwelt. This was his Shekinah glory, which means his dwelling or his presence. Letter E, in the temple. After Solomon completed the temple, God's glory filled it like a cloud. But we know that didn't last either, as the Israelites didn't honor him as they should have. And in Ezekiel 9 and 10, we read that God's glory departed the temple. Letter F, in Jesus Christ, God in flesh. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. However, when Jesus came into the world, His glory was veiled. People around Him initially didn't recognize any outward glory in Him at all. But during His ministry... He revealed his glory. He revealed it in various ways. First, through numerous miracles, demonstrating his omnipotence as well as compassion and mercy toward the sick and the lame. Secondly, through his teaching, right, demonstrating his wisdom and his omniscience. Third, very specially through the transfiguration, he revealing his glory. Matthew 17, 2 says, He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And number four, through his crucifixion and resurrection, demonstrating his sovereignty and his power over sin and death. Letter G, God's glory is demonstrated in believers. Now, while Christ is not physically with us now, his glory is displayed in the church. Ephesians 3.29, 
to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So the purpose of believers is to reflect and radiate God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Letter H, in Christ's return. Christ will return in blazing glory. Matthew 24.30, Jesus says, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What a day that will be. Letter I, in heaven. Heaven will be full of God's glory. So much that his brilliance will be the only source of light that's needed. Revelation 21, 23. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The other verses listed there for letter I describe how believers will be glorified like Christ has been. Our hope. So let's look at some characteristics of God's glory. For the first few of these, we're going to look at Moses' interaction with God in Exodus 33. So go ahead and turn over there with me. Exodus chapter 33. So the first point here is that God is glorious and majestic. He's glorious and majestic. God's glory encompasses all of his attributes, his infinite grandeur and greatness. I've used two words here, glorious and majestic, because God's majesty emphasizes his supreme greatness and exalted position, highlighting his transcendence, while God's glory is the visible display of his majesty, showcasing his radiant splendor and divine attributes. So both of these concepts reflect this awe-inspiring nature of God. In, in Exodus 33, we read of Moses interceding for the people, and in verse 18, he makes a bold request of God, saying, I pray you, Show me your glory. Now remember, at this point, Moses had already seen the glory of God in ways that far exceeded anyone else had ever seen. Think about it. He encountered God in the burning bush. He witnessed the pillar of cloud and fire to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He saw God part the Red Sea and drown Pharaoh's army. He saw water come gushing out of a rock. He beheld fire fall on Mount Sinai and consume the mountainside in God's presence. After all of these experiences, Moses still prays, show me your glory. What else do you think he was looking for? Well, Moses understood that he had only skimmed the surface of the endless majesty of God. He wanted to experience a yet deeper knowledge of God. He wanted more of this awesome God. 
The word for glory here means heavy or weighty. In, in ancient times, the greatness of a person was determined by the weight of their assets. Now, think of the weight of silver, gold, or jewels. This weight also translated into cultural and societal influence and power. But with God, the word glory represents the infinite weightiness of who he is. Thomas Watson said, The weight of glory adds to the worth. The weightier gold is, the more it is worth. This glory is not transient, but permanent and eternal weight. It is better felt than expressed. Number two, God is self-revealing. He is self-revealing. God chooses to respond to Moses' request with affirmation. He says in verse 19, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. He tells Moses, He will proclaim himself before him. He announces this with authority and power. God's revealing of his glory is always according to his sovereign choice. He's never persuaded into revealing his glory by anything or anyone outside of himself. The name of the Lord here refers to everything that God is. His entire nature, his character, in person. Steve Lawson says, Moses can only know God to the extent that God chooses to make himself known. The greater must condescend to the lesser. Moses can make no demands on God. Moses can only appeal to God to reveal more of himself. This self-revelation of God is entirely at his sovereign discretion. The same is true for us today. Each one of us must pursue him with eagerness, knowing that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews eleven six. he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Don't ask for a visible sign of his glory like Moses received, but he will answer our prayers. Number three, God is awesome. He is awesome. Now, I don't mean awesome in the informal sense, such as terrific or inspiring or like that dinner I had last night was awesome. God is awesome in that it produces awe. While today the word awe mainly carries the idea of wonder, historically it has meant terror. When God displays his glory to humans, It's always restricted or muted because his glory is too much for sinful creatures to behold directly. With Moses, God explains why this is necessary. In verse 20, chapter 33 of Exodus, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. If God manifested all that he is in his blazing glory, Moses would immediately die. So, God graciously gave him this constraint so he wouldn't die. God's reference to his face here is representative of his glory. 
We know that God does not have a literal face. He is a spirit. He has no physical form. John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. This is, again, anthropomorphic language. It's a way to communicate to us finite creatures in the way that we can better understand him. So to see the face of God means to know and experience who he is. So God provides multiple gracious restrictions when revealing himself to Moses here. In verse 21, then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. He had to retreat a distance away so as not to be too close to God's glory. Verse 22, And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. A a cleft of a rock is a narrow opening. So Moses being put there shields him from God's holy radiance. And also, God covers Moses with his hand, another anthropomorphism here, but it indicates further protection of Moses. And then in verse 23, he says, Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God only removes his hand from Moses once he's passed by. Moses can only see God's back and live. This is like an afterglow, not the full revelation of who God is. Nevertheless, it was so intense that after coming down from the mountain, Moses' face continued to shine from God's glory, right? To the point others were afraid to approach him, and he had to cover his face with a veil. This is an amazing account of God's glory. But the most awesome display of God's glory is in the crucifixion of Christ. Here, God's manifold glory is demonstrated. Think about it. His sovereignty, holiness, righteousness, justice and wrath, mercy, grace, All of it on full display. At no other point in history is there such a concentration of God's glory across all of his attributes and all of its splendor. John Calvin said, For in the cross of Christ, as in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines indeed in all creatures on high and below, but never more brightly Then in the cross, in that death, we see a boundless glory. There's one last characteristic to mention here. And I I think it appropriately wraps up the entire 10-week study. Number four, God is worthy. He is worthy. There's only one proper response to the glory of God. And that is our praise and worship. Before you think that perhaps God will somehow not be glorified if we don't worship him, remember, he doesn't need our worship somehow to fill a deficiency. He's utterly and completely perfect in his glory. C.S. Lewis said, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him 
than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. However, God does desire our worship, right? And he's worthy of it. David exclaims this uh, in Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. God is worthy of our praise. Now, you may be asking, how can we glorify God when he's already perfectly and completely glorious? Believers are called to glorify God even though he's already inherently perfectly glorious. The idea of believers glorifying God doesn't mean that we can add to or increase God's glory in any way. Rather, it means that we're to acknowledge, reflect, give recognition to the glory that already belongs to God. Now, according to Scripture, we can do this in several ways. Letter A, acknowledge His glory. Start by acknowledging it. This begins by having a proper understanding of Him and His attributes. We do that by studying His Word. Psalm 29.2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Letter B, reflect His glory through our lives, demonstrating His transforming power. Holy living reflects God's glory, and it points others to Him. Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Letter C, worship Him in response to His glory. Praise Him for who He is and what He's done. In Revelation 4.11, the heavenly creatures give us a, a model. They say, worthy are you, Our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Letter D, proclaim the gospel for his glory. Proclaim it. When we share the good news of salvation through Christ, we're glorifying him. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. So some takeaways here on God's glory. Number one, never tire of the magnificence of God's glory. Have you thought deeply about the weightiness and the infinite grandeur of his glory? Think of everything that Moses experienced of God's glory, and that was veiled. It was restricted. He is infinitely glorious. Number two, remember your chief end is to glorify God. Knowing God, beholding his glory, it's foundational to everything in our lives. We exist for his glory. God created us for his glory, our chief end. But remember, 
When we glorify God, it's in response to what he's done for us, right? Not for any gain on our part or somehow to complete something that's lacking in him. So ask yourself some of these questions, and I include myself here. What ways are you actively seeking to know him more? We must know whom we are glorifying. Personal study of Scripture, hearing the preaching and teaching of the Word are primary ways to do that. Does His glory produce a sense of reverence and awe in you? Do we approach Him with humility, acknowledging His worthiness? Does the display of His glory and creation and other believers impact your understanding of His character? We should never take for granted the glory of His creation that we see every day and the glory of His saving and transforming work in the lives of His people. That is His glory on display. Are you reflecting His glory through your actions and attitudes? As redeemed believers, we should be growing in Christ-likeness, bearing more fruit of the Spirit, Anything good in us comes from the Lord, so we point it all to Him. Thomas Watson said, There is no one here present, but God has put in some capacity of glorifying Him. The health He has given you, the parts, the state, seasons of grace, all are opportunities put into your hand to glorify Him. And be assured, He will call you to account to know what you have done with the mercies He has entrusted you with, what glory you have brought to him. So, as we close, I want to take a brief moment to wrap up this study. Uh, I, I provided a second handout that sort of serves as a summary. No blanks for you to fill in, so you can just uh, read through that. The goal of this study was not to cover everything there is to know about God's attributes, as I'm sure you know, or how to uh, every way it can be applied. We just scratched the surface. But this study should be a catalyst for you to dive deeper. Now, I, at the top of the first page there on the summary, I've included all the definitions that we have went through I've also listed some suggested resources, expanding from that list that I provided in the first week. And remember, the bullet points that I put next to the books there are only my evaluation of the level of depth or complexity of those books. But trust me, all of them are very helpful. Note that on Thomas Watson's and Stephen Charnock's books, I have put links there. Those are links to the PDF versions of those books. And I found those to be really, really helpful because they're very long and you can search by keyword at that point. Very helpful. The Doctrine of God study by Paul Washer is a great source if you're looking for a structured approach uh, for a deeper study. My wife, Kathy, has gone through it, so you can maybe ask her if she has any reviews uh, to give you on that. The video resources there, uh, there are sessions on a number of attributes 
that you can view for free. Highly recommend those. Very helpful. And then I found there is a conference coming up in September, the G3 conference. They're going to focus on the sovereignty of God. So that might be worth looking into. Now, on the other side of that handout, I've listed some general takeaways to consider now that we've completed the study. Now, I've drawn these and the quotes you'll see from Stephen Charnock and Thomas Watson, uh, both who were very careful to describe in detail what they call uses, which are really the so what or the application as it relates to God's attributes. Very helpful. Uh, They literally wrote dozens and dozens of pages of these uses that you will find in those documents. So this is a radically reduced summary. So I encourage you to look at them in detail. I encourage you to do your own study. Look deeply into these attributes. Study what Scripture has to say. And then consider the implications to you of these truths. Now that you've learned about God's attributes, what should you do with that knowledge? How should you think? How should you respond to trials? How should you view all things in the light of his attributes? Here are a few takeaways. Number one, meditate on God's attributes. Time and time again, Charnock and Watson remind us to meditate on, remember, study, take interest in God's attributes. One of them here from Watson, get an interest in the unchangeable God, then thou art as a rock in the sea, immovable in the midst of all changes. Number two, worship God with reverence and awe, not just for his glory, but for all of his attributes. With this understanding of his character, we're to worship him and adore him. Charnock says, Our reverence to God and all our addresses to him will arrive to greater degrees if every act of duty be ushered in and seasoned with the thoughts of God as sitting upon a throne of holiness. Number three, be humbled in light of God's nature. As we worship God with reverence and all, we should also be humbled in understanding our lowly condition compared to the infinite, perfect God of the universe. Watson says, as God's mercy makes the saints happy, so it should make them humble. Number four, trust God and do not doubt him. Knowing that he's sovereign and good, we can trust him in everything. Charnock many times says that a particular attribute is grounds for trusting God. Watson says we have not a richer jewel to trust God with than our souls, nor has God a richer jewel to trust us with than his truth. Number five, persevere in holiness. The the proof of our trust in God is that we persevere in holiness, in obedience. Charnock says from this infiniteness of power in God, we have ground of assurance for perseverance. We don't do this alone. Number six, be comforted. Understanding God's attributes gives us comfort 
and hope. Charnock says, as omnipotence is an ocean that cannot be fathomed, so the comforts from it are streams that cannot be exhausted. Isn't that great? And number seven, remember God's church will persevere. We can be confident God will build and protect his church just as he's promised. Watson says the church is the apple of God's eye. The eyelid of his providence daily covers and defends it. There are literally hundreds of pages of wonderful content just in those two books alone, as well as the other resources. So I encourage you to look more deeply into it and specifically as it relates to what you will do with it in your own walk. Steve Lawson, in the preface of his book, Show Me Your Glory, uh, says this, and, and I echo his thoughts here. My desire is that these transcendent truths will significantly shape your life into who you must become. May you never see God the same way again. And may you therefore never see yourself, your salvation, or the world in which you live the same way again. Let's pray. Father, you are eternally self-existent, unchanging, all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful, supremely sovereign, utterly holy, righteously just, jealous and wrathful, truthful and wise, good, patient, merciful, gracious, loving, and glorious. Thank you for this time that we've had to study your attributes over these last several weeks. In our feeble attempt to better understand you, I pray that your truth from your word, illumined by your spirit, would be impressed on our hearts, not only to know about you, but to better know you and to grow in the likeness of Christ. I thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word Thank you for the many bright minds you've enabled to think and write about your truths in such helpful ways. And most of all, Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, God in flesh, demonstrating your divine attributes to your people. As we consider your character, I pray you would increase our reverence and awe of you Lord, you are an amazing God. Humble us. Give us thankful hearts for what you've already done for us, what you're doing in us now, and what you will eventually do for us. And all these things, Lord, may you be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.